Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy, the podcast featuring philosophical discussions with thinkers worth thinking about. I'm Julian Pagini. Today's episode features another philosophy salon recorded live pre-COVID at St. George's in Bristol. This time, we're talking about the perhaps unlikely and surprising connections between philosophy and, well, cycling. Now, I was sceptical too, but after talking with activist, writer and self-described outdoor philosopher Kate Rawls, and writer and musician Jack MacDonald, I was converted and I hope you will be too. Before we dived into the philosophy, I asked both my guests to tell us a bit more about the remarkable journeys that inspired their books, Kate Rawls's The Carbon Cycle and Jack MacDonald's Mind is the Ride. So I've become, I guess, a passionate environmentalist over the years, and I've become particularly excited about the potential of using somewhat adventurous journeys as a way of waking people up, raising awareness, and hopefully inspiring some action on our big environmental crisis. So the carbon cycle was a bike ride from Texas to Alaska, following the spine of the Rocky Mountains and exploring climate change as an issue. And I did it at the height of the Bush administration. And of course, Bush at the time was considered to be the arch-villain of the global climate change drama. It's a little bit unnerving how benign he seems now as a character. But anyway, it was an interesting time to be riding my bike in North America, exploring climate change. And then I came back and turned it into a slideshow. And eventually, many years later, a worst-selling book, which was a way harder challenge than the actual 4,500-miles ride it was based on. Okay, we'll hear more about the ride later. What about Jet? What about your, your ride? It was pretty incredible, too. You started in Bristol, on the Bristol to Bath uh, bike path. Yeah, so um, whereas Kate was in the Wild West on her carbon cycle tour, I headed towards the mystical east from Eastern, um, down the Bristol Bath bike path, and I went across Europe and through the Middle East and into India and then cycled down the west coast of India and then came back by container ship because I was a bit tired. (laughs) And I went with um, my partner at the time, Jen, and so we both cycled that route and then came back. And then I decided to investigate the experiences in that journey using the toolkit of philosophy. Uh, So that's essentially what my book is about. So the book wasn't necessarily the main idea at the beginning. What made you want to do it in the first place? Why did you do it? I think I wanted to do it because I'd become intoxicated with cycling. I, I, I was a, a kind of like born-again bike evangelist, having been professionalised into taking a car and commuting anywhere. And then I rediscovered cycling, and I became very excited by it. And I really wanted to do a long journey and prolong that excitement beyond a weekend into somewhere a bit more... Um, estranged from my own culture and I thought cycling would be a really good way to do that um, so I saved up the money convinced the boss that it was a cultural experiment in psychiatry and then took a year off and went on the trip Okay, what's philosophy got to do with your trip? Actually it's got quite a lot to do with it because I am deeply convinced that if we're going to tackle the big suite of environmental crisis that we currently face, so climate change, obviously, but also the avalanche of species extinction that we're witnessing and ecosystem collapse and all the rest of the big issues. If we're going to tackle those, then we have to look at the deep roots of those causes. And some of those deep roots are definitely philosophical. They're about our relationship with nature, obviously, and they're also about what we value as individuals and culturally, and particularly how we are trained by our capitalist economic system to value 
value stuff and things and growth and profit and money and how utterly unsustainable that model has become. And all of those things are deeply philosophical and they're linked to cycling too, obviously, in ways which I'm sure we'll explore. Yeah, I'm sure we will. So, so, so Jet, I mean, you know, you like philosophy, you like cycling. Some of you may remember that series, The Far Show, where they had this spoof product called Cheesy Peas and the idea was you like cheese, you like peas, you like cheesy peas. And um, <laughs> um, so, you know, you like cycling, you like philosophy, but, but presumably you thought that's not just, that's not a cheesy peas. There's actually a genuine uh, point of connection here. What, what, what made you think of putting those two things together? I think because I found the experience so amazing and so transformational, that trip. And when people came back, as you come back from these trips, they say to you in the pub, so you're going to write a book, are you? You know, it's like the next thing you do, you know, apart from clean your bike up. And I didn't just want to write a book that was just documenting what had happened to me. I wanted to explore the experiences that I had. And I didn't really feel that I could understand those experiences fully um, unless I interrogated them. And I thought using philosophy and the different schools of philosophy would be a very good way to do that. Um, so I decided to combine a conventional travelogue with a journey into philosophical understanding, some of the experiences I had, basically. And a technical guide to bicycles, too. And actually. a technical guide to bicycles. I thought I'd ram it all in there while I had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you learn a lot about how bikes work. It's, it's remarkably complicated and fascinating. But look, let's, let's go into some of those uh, philosophical issues. Some of them are political, obviously, but then there's a lot which is perhaps more sort of personal. And for, for both of you, I think, although correct me if I'm wrong, there was a sense in which part of the purpose seemed to be to, you know, break out of a kind of automatic sort of way of living. Kate, you say in your book, you know, normal life can be incredibly sticky when you try to leave it. And on this occasion, it required an immense effort to break free. And, you know, you said cycling wakes us from our computer screens and cars by relocating us into a whole new merry-go-round of tensions and movement. So, well, first of all, what thoughts do you have on this sense of the, the stuckness of life? Because there are presumably other ways you could jolt yourself out of that. But what makes cycling a particularly good way of, of jolting us out of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, perhaps I can ask a, answer a prior question, which is how I got to that point. I, I was really, really impacted by, it's a cliche, this is, the, the idea that changed my life, right? And it was an idea in a book by a guy called Bill Plotkin, who's a North American philosopher and environmental activist. And Bill Plotkin wrote that if you can figure out where something you really love doing like riding a bike, for example, where something you really love doing intersects with something the world actually needs, then that sweet spot in the middle is where you'll be your happiest, but also your most effective. And so suddenly I had a justification for escaping from my university job, which was fabulous, but had begun to suck the life out of me, um, and, and to go and ride my bike in big mountains as a way of trying to do the environmental work I wanted to do. So that was how I got to that point of setting myself free. And then once you're out there in the world on a bicycle, it, a bike is a magician. I mean, it completely transforms a journey that would be mundane in a car into a, a mini adventure and it also completely transforms the way you interact with people the way you interact with landscapes the way you interact with nature so it's very very good at unsticking you from all sorts of um, stickiness of normal life and allowing you to see the world from a very different perspective in my experience were you, were you stuck when you did this journey or i think i was stuck in the sense that i was 39 <laughs> and 40 Youngster. was approaching 
And I don't think it's an unfamiliar situation for people who find themselves at that point of midlife transition, uh, as I was told to say, rather than crisis, to, um, to kind of try and do something about it by uh, transitioning somewhere else. But I think for me, cycling as a way of becoming unstuck was uh, in two different ways uh, happening. One way was that, and I think as Kate has alluded to, that cycling can take you enormous distances, uh, but in a very personalised kind of way. And so you end up being regularly, daily, hourly, confronted with new people and new situations. And you kind of have a vast variation of cultural difference within a day, within a month, within a year. And then the hours that you spend not talking to people when you're on the bike and you don't see anyone gives you time to contemplate those experiences with space that you don't normally have in everyday life. So, and if, so in a purely pragmatic level, there's a time and a space and experience that isn't necessarily happening in our day-to-day lives. I think there's a whole set of other things that go on in terms of how you're relocated in the world in a different way when you're cycling. And I had a conversation with Clive Cazot before I started this book, who's a professor of philosophy uh, of aesthetics in Cardiff, but also the head of the uh, cycling campaign. So he's this really neat intersection of lots of different things. And he described cycling, and I love this, as, as a kind of choreographed falling and uh, I think that's a wonderful way of describing this way that cycling kind of relocates you in the world with all these different pressure points on your feet and your hands and your body and the way that you move, a very different kind of physical sensation. And so that immediately kind of relocates you in a different kind of sensual experience in the world. And that's a very good way of getting unstuck, I think, from familiarity. Did you, you, you're nodding, did you want to follow up on that in any way? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a vivid memory of being on a train many years ago from Colorado to California, and it was a two-day journey, and I was reading Bruce Chatwin's songlines, and somewhere in that book he writes that humans have been nomadic and in motion for much, much longer across our whole history than we have been settled and stationary. And it was just like this aha moment. And so for me, when I'm on the road and on the bike, it just feels like, well, this is this is a kind of a natural, normal way to live and then when you get back into your house that feels like a collision almost and suddenly you've got walls around you so that so there's a freedom from the stationariness which I think is actually a return to something deeply normal and then there's a mind freedom I find that people say what do you think about when you're on your bike and actually I don't think about very much (laughs) oh isn't that a great liberation to have that monkey mind sort of shut up for a bit (laughs) it brings you much much more deeply into the present moment and and wow, I mean, that is just the best way ever to feel really alive and really located, right? I mean, actually, in Czech, you made that connection with sort of mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness, as you, you point out, has been somewhat co-opted, really. I mean, you know, mindfulness for business, mindfulness for the military. You know, it's just another little tool to kind of help us uh, do our tasks more efficiently. But, um, that, you know, in, in a kind of more high, high, well, purer sense, if you like, there's mindfulness isn't just a practice of, of meditation. And maybe it's not even primarily it's about a meditation it's well what, what is it what is it for you um in its best sense and do you how do you get it cycling well i think mindfulness is about remembering to turn return to the present and it's a kind of mixture i think of a kind of vigilance and concentration 
kind of wider uh, sense of letting go and a kind of sense also of returning. So it sounds like a paradox, but there's something about the experience of cycling where you focus on a single thing, which is the day-to-day movement of the wheels, the burr of the tyres. So that has a kind of singular, pure focus. And at the same time, you continually have this different kind of sensory place in the world. So you're reminded to come back to that focus again and again. And there's something that I think is echoed there in the principles of mindfulness. And we don't necessarily verbalise that when we're on a bicycle, but I think there's something about the process of moving through the endless repetition of moving our legs, uh, the movement of the wheels, which echoes some of this these changes in attention that happen when we're being mindful in meditation. It's interesting, a traditional mindfulness practice is usually focused on the breath, and I yeah. suppose, you know, it's that, just that rep- repetitive bodily motion, I suppose, you, you are aware of that cycling too. Yeah, yeah, you, you become very aware of your physical sensations when you're riding, because I think cycling is so marvellously efficient that it can push you further than sometimes you want to go, and I know reading um, Kate's book, she talks a lot about this, um, going further than you possibly think you could go and then going even further than that. And I think you become much more aware of your sensations and your physical sensations and your breath. And all of that physicality helps you return, I think, to the moment in a way that we can become more bound in our thoughts uh, and get lost in a vortex of thinking, um, sometimes when we're off the bike. It sounds almost kind of mystical, uh, but maybe that's because we use the word mystical for anything that doesn't kind of, can be entirely captured in, <laughs> in sort of formal uh, propositions, we put that. But I mean, but another aspect of that, which I think, again, you both talk about, but Kate, you talk about this, is how this feeling that when you're out there cycling, again, if I quote from the book, you said, on a bike, you are really in the landscape. You can smell it and hear it. This, this thing of being in, really feeling in the world in that way. I mean, that's not just nice, is it? I think that's one of the ideas you think is important to grasp if we're going to solve the ecological crisis. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the deep roots of our environmental crisis in the West, the deep roots of the rest of the environmental crisis is everywhere, obviously, is this idea that we are not part of nature, that nature is something out there, um, and that we live in human communities rather than ecological communities. And I think we have to transcend that idea or dissolve it or whatever the metaphor would be if we're going to really learn how to live sustainably. We have to understand in a deep way that we are part of nature and that we live in ecological communities and that we depend on the fellow citizens of our ecological communities literally for our life and our well-being. And you really start to get that sense, I think, particularly if you're cycle touring and camping a lot. And, I mean, and it's a mixed sense sometimes. Like, I remember the first time I ever was cycle touring and camping in an ecosystem that had something that might eat me while I was in my sense. And you really realize, oh, crikey, yeah, I am just part of the food web. And that's quite an invigorating feeling, but it's also, yeah, you definitely are, have your antennae going. But, but it's a really profoundly important thing to, to wake up to and to feel as well as to know that, yeah, 
yeah, we are part of ecosystems and we depend on these ecosystems and we are just in there alongside all the other fellow citizens of our ecological communities. And I don't know a better way to get that than a long bike journey, really. Yeah, well, so, if you're camping, particularly. I mean, I think that's that sort of set way of thinking is something which is more perhaps typical in what we call the Eastern philosophies, Indian philosophies. I think you found that, didn't you, Jess? So you talk about a lot of different philosophies. You never nail your uh, flags <laughs> to the mast of any in particular. Well, first interesting question, is there is there one that you actually ended up embracing or have you... Have you been a bit of a cherry picker? I think, I, I mean, I think I was a cherry picker. Yeah. And um, I think there's a danger in doing that. You can seem like you're just looking for the right philosophy at the right time. But I think a broader journey that I was going on was a journey away from a more rational or analytical perspective where you try to understand things by breaking them down into categories to a more synthetic experience. And I think... Broadly, and this is a broad gloss, um, there is a more present tradition in the Eastern philosophies, although it's changing with globalisation, of understanding things in a more synthetic or holistic way. So I think the experience that chimed, the the philosophy that chimed most with me, with the experiences that I was having, uh, was Buddhist philosophy. And uh, again, you can look at that in a purely pragmatic way and say that on a bicycle you're paradoxically sitting still on your seat if you're not standing up to ride, which is the most efficient way, um, apparently. Um, sit on your seat. but you're, So you're sitting on a seat, but everything is changing and moving around you. So you're kind of seated in stillness, but you have this kind of experience of everything moving around you. And one of the primary things in Buddhist philosophy is an understanding Uh, that everything is interconnected and everything is changing, but paradoxically, to understand that, you have to be still. And I think there's a very interesting overlap there, just in a purely pragmatic way, um, with the experience of being on a bicycle. A lot of what you say is true there, but I just the, the, what you said earlier was that you were moving away from the sort of rational yes. point of view. Now, yes. I suppose I would question that, because yeah. there's a form of rationality which you then... Your sentence went on to say about you know breaking things down, yes, being very yes, yes. But in a sense, isn't we, associating rationality with that? Haven't we made a mistake? The, the Buddhist system is not a non-rational system. It's a very rational way what? of analysing what it means to be a human being. But it does so in a way which comes to a different conclusion, namely that there are no essences with uh, particular, you know, permanent, unchanging. Uh, characteristics is mm. everything has to be understood in terms of the relations that seems to be rational not mystical yeah okay i think it was and i was talking a broad gloss but i think the eastern traditions i think have a long history uh, of understanding the world through both if you like mystical experiences understood through uh, physical practices but also a rational perspective um, and understanding Uh, the world using reason, balancing ideas, discursive back and forth between teachers and pupils. So I wouldn't want to categorise it entirely as being East mystic synthesism and West kind of uh, analytic rationalism. I suppose I was just trying to make a broader point, but I'd take your point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing, again, both of you sort of latch on to, I think, you know, correctly, I think, is that for all its merits, the kind of 
paradigmatic approach in Western science and logic has been to sort of it's the break things down approach, and that the need to see things as being more interconnected. And and certainly, I think you know that's something which you know, Kate, in your book, it's something that. It comes home more, let's put it this way, when you're actually experiencing it. He actually said some interesting things about wildlife parks. So, you know, the old idea of conservation was you create conservation areas, right? And on that trip, it sort of became obvious to you what was wrong with that as an idea. Can you say a little bit about that? Because I think that relates to this idea of the importance of connectivity in systems. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if our goal is to protect other species and uh, natural ecosystems and ecosystem processes, then one approach is to sort of put a fence like around a big area and say, okay, everything in there is sacrosanct. No hunting, no fishing, no shooting, um, no tramping about. Let's make sure that everything in there just gets on and does its own thing. And that's a great model up to a point, except for that humans have a massive impact on the natural world in the way we live and move in outside these areas. Areas. And I really encountered that on my last trip, which was in South America, cycling the length of the Andes. And one of the things I bumped into was extractivist industries and gold mining and what happens when you have gold mining leaching mercury into ecosystems. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But so, so one problem with the nature reserve model is that it's fine within the nature reserve, but a lot of our impacts on nature happen outside a nature reserve. And of course, another huge problem, particularly now in the climate change context, is that a lot of species who can move need to be able to move to get into a more suitable climate so as the temperature goes up you'll find a lot of species going north or going up including trees interestingly um, and, and various plant species and that just doesn't work if you're in a nature reserve with a fence around it so to speak a metaphorical fence and then you're surrounded by roads and urbanization so a really really key part of modern nature conservation is this connectivity idea that we need nature corridors and nature networks and nature connections and not just nature reserves and we also need to think about how we integrate all of our normal human activities uh, with pro-nature activities. There's an example of that. Um, you used the phrase earlier in the discussion, also in the book, food webs. People often talk about the food chain. I, I think I understand food web to be an alternative and better description as that. Why is food web better than food chain? Well, food chain is just a bit oversimple, isn't it? It sort of suggests that one thing always eats another thing, which eats another thing, and then you get to the top thing. Whereas actually it's a lot more messy, isn't it? It's much more interconnected, and one thing will be eaten by a myriad other things, which eats myriad other things. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, something... We talked about nature, but sort of human nature as well. Both of you use the phrase at some point, the kindness of strangers, right? And, you know, in Kate's book, you, you, you were given advice before you set off, which is keep your wits about you, but start from a position of trust. You'll have a fantastic time. And, uh, you know, you also report this, people are kind. Now, I mean, that that is interesting because I think typically, you know, as we travel, I think people do go with that basis of suspicion. So in a way here, what we're talking about is the age-old issue, you know, human nature, good or bad. Now, obviously, putting those terms, that's automatically stupid to put it in those binary terms. We accept humans are both good and bad. It's a matter of degree. So if we reframe the question a bit more sensibly, it's, you know, where are most people on this spectrum? Do they tend towards the good? Do they tend towards the bad? And in a way, your, your, your journey seems to suggest that experimentally, uh, observationally, 
people are more good than bad. Is that true and is that heartening? Is that lovely? Well, uh, we saw that kindness every day and that kindness increased the further we went away from Europe. So I don't know what that says about Europe or or European philosophy. Um, And so those examples could be as simple as uh, someone uh, taking your water bottle, your your rank dirty water bottles in our case, um, inside to their house and filling them up and bringing them back. Or it could be putting you up from the night without even knowing who you are. And if it was a poor family, letting you... in fact, making you sleep in their main bedroom while the whole family sleeps in the dusty yard outside. So Kate and I both talked at something called the Cycle Touring Festival, which is a wonderful festival, and it's not just about uh, cycling, it's about ideas as well. And the recurrent theme there, and I'm, as I'm sure Kate will go on to mention, is the kindness so you, of strangers. So uh, empirically, it's not just us two. <laughs> it's kind of like this... If you go to the Cycle Touring Conference, then everyone's talking about it. But I think what strikes me more is that, um, not necessarily that people are kind, um, but why we're so shocked in the West that people are kind. Why in this culture have we changed, or is our position, that people are unkind? And why was, I, why was this a revelation to me? And, and I think that's almost as interesting as the, the question. But, but it's more complicated than that, because mm. this journey, Kate, was in North America, right? It, well, yeah, so this was the hotbed of, of mm. decadent Western civilization. You found kindness there too, right? So is it just that everyone's much nicer than we think? Or, or, or what? What's going on? It, I mean, it's a really hard question to answer, isn't it? Because... I don't know everyone, <laughs> but but I do know I've ridden the length of North America and ridden the length of South America and had not one problematic incident with a stranger ever. And of course, you can't tell, can you, how much of that is luck and how much of that is just how things are. But every other solo cyclist, because I rode these journeys mostly alone, every other solo cyclist or indeed unsolo cyclist that I have ever met says something very, very similar. So it might be that there's something about a person turning up on a bicycle, particularly a heavily loaded bicycle, that draws out the best in things. And I've always thought that if you're a woman on a heavily loaded bicycle, that really... And if you're on a woman on a bamboo bicycle wow (laughs) that's like having a magic pass but you've had really positive experiences as well so I don't think it's just the the gender issue I think there is something about being on a bicycle that really does bring out the best in people but is it also perhaps something about the kind of except for Chilean bus drivers okay so just just, okay (laughs) this is flow to hypothesis is it something about the kind of places you go on a bicycle because it seems to me that Okay, so this is, this is almost an evolutionary explanation to this. When people live in small-scale societies, there's a kind of an assumption of trust. Everyone knows everyone. It's, it's only when you get to that anonymous sort of urban living where there's a very strong chance that you won't ever see the person you saw again. That kind of distrust and taking advantage of other people becomes more kind of dominant. So could it be partly the fact that both of you went off out of big urban areas, essentially, North America... And you say the further east you went, the more away from that. I think that might be part of it. And I think certainly my experience was the further we veered away from tourism Mm. and hospitality and the hospitality industry, the more hospitable people became. But certainly, for example, in Iran, we went through some major cities. And I remember one particular city. I can't remember which one it was now. We arrived in the city and we'd already had 
many Iranian families are already putting us up. And to be frank, we just wanted to have a night by ourselves in a hotel room. And it was raining. It was raining. It was absolutely pissing it down. And we were sodden. And we didn't look glamorous at all in my... And, but we had five different people flag us down in the first 10 kilometres asking us to stay. And we had to very politely say, no, we just need some time to ourselves. So I think there's definitely something in that, but I don't think it's quite as... Because I suppose to tell you the East-West thing, because, you know, this thing, you know, start from a position of trust. I, you know, when I travelled for, for the book I wrote, and I was going to urban areas, right? And first of all, I, I was... In, OK, so I'll tell you a little story of how stupid I am, but not stupid, <laughs> mistrustful. I was in Shanghai, and, you know, I was a bit suspicious and uh, someone came along and said oh a couple of people oh would you take our photo yeah I'll take a photo and they went oh where are you from oh I love you oh, we, oh we're travelling to yeah would you like to come for us a coffee no 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 I thought not doing this mistrust mistrust a second couple did it by the time a third couple did it I thought maybe I'm just not being too cynical you know I'm being too mean maybe these people are nice here okay I went with them for their tea now it wasn't the worst scam in the world, but I was scammed out of about $150, right, through this, right? And then I, I went to Beijing, and someone tried a very similar thing, and they said, oh, do you want to go for coffee? And I said, I did that in Shanghai. It cost me $150. Are you doing the same? And they just nodded and said, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, in, and then in, India, in India, I had a similar situation. Someone came up and started having a conversation. I was stung by this. I was very, very wary. So I was, you know, I wasn't very keen, wasn't very keen. But, you know, at the, end, at the end of the conversation, they went off and, you know, they hadn't tried to scam me and everything. And I saw them again. And, but again, it was, it, I think, I'm pretty sure this was a, a slow scam. They had this thing about taking you to a little orphanage and would you do a talk? I'm sure. This, and I resisted that. So, but it seems to me, again, both of those places were places where tourists, well, actually it was Bodhgaya in India, it's mainly sort of, pilgrims but you know um both places where there'd be those tourist things and that seems to attract the people who are going to look out to attract the vulnerable people and maybe so many of us you know when we do travel we go to places other travelers go you know we're, we're we're caught out for that maybe if we were in the middle of london looking obviously like tourists we'd realize they're among us too i think you um, just need a bicycle do you <laughs> yeah that's what it is I, I, I just need a bicycle it's as simple as that the bicycle is also <laughs> Obviously, you're evangelists for the bicycle, but I kind of felt this times I wanted to stand up for other things. So in terms of mindfulness, I stand up for playing tennis, right? Yeah. I play tennis. I think that's my mindfulness meditation. Um, but also, I mean, like, what about walkers, eh? I mean, walking. And uh, not only that, but, you know, we're, we have use even less technology than you, right? You know, we don't need this big machine with, with gears and stuff. So are you just doing a bit of special pleading for bicycling because you love it? Or do you think there really is something special about cycling which you don't, can't get from walking? Well, I don't think it has to be either or. I mean, I'm going to object to the way this question has been set up to start with. But I think walkers and cyclists unite, right? We're both low-impact travellers on the world and we can tread lightly on the world together or pedal lightly. But I think there is one thing about cycling, which I'm a walker as well, um, and I particularly love walking in the hills. And there is no equivalent in hill walking to that whoosh when you come down a hill on a bicycle and you don't have to do anything. You, your bicycle just swoops you down the hill coming down the hill um on on your feet is often harder than going up as we all know especially as you get a bit older and your knees start to creak a bit more so so i think i'd stand up for that one unique thing about the bicycle it's the whoosh and the freewheeling and there's no equivalent of freewheeling on your feet 
Yeah, and so this is a question I've, I've heard before. And so I was saying earlier that I, I crowdfunded this book, so I had to talk. To, I must have done about 15, 20 talks to people, and uh, people would say, "Well, what about whale watching?" <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to kind of um, say that uh, cycling is the way because I think that would narrow down philosophy to a kind of cult. <laughs> but what I, I think there is something special about cycling which gives a particular inroad to understanding experiences in a different way. And I think that's because it, the bicycle is such an incredibly efficient machine. And it's evolved in a very nuanced way over the past 120 years with these tiny little step changes in technology that fit around the human body. And that means that you can travel further under your own steam than any other transport under your own steam and you can push your body to ridiculous extremes sometimes without even realizing it and I think that kind of pushes the boundaries of what we can experience physically and then also takes you to these strange psychological places where you can be halfway up a mountain run out of food thinking this is the worst possible thing in the whole world I could be doing uh, and then be at the top of that hill, and then, as Kate was saying, come down and have this glorious experience of flight, but somehow also somehow grounded. And to go from that, like one wheel in the black piece of a chessboard and one wheel in the white piece of a chessboard within the space of half an hour, I think plays with the human condition and human identity in a very interesting way. I think there's something that you'd get a bit different from a bicycle that you, you don't get from walking. Maybe you get it from riding a horse, actually, maybe. But is that the, where the boundaries of the self are? I mean, again, I think probably both of you could talk about this, but what do you think I mean when I say that? <laughs> well, I think for a start, I don't know Kate will relate to this because her bike was called Rocky. So there's a, there, there's a tradition of naming your bike, I think, amongst cyclists who get into it, which immediately suggests that you're bestowing some kind of personhood on your bicycle and how you'll name your bike probably says a lot about the namer uh, as much as the name uh, and my bike was called Bertle because it looked a bit like a beetle and it was a bit Bert-like uh, and retrospectively probably for the uh, purposes of writing this book I decided it was a bit like Bertrand Russell but I think a bicycle is a way of uh, connecting with the world in a different way. It's a tool in that way. And it can make you experience the world in a different way and become an extension of who you are. And if you're on your bike long enough, like Kate and I have been, where you spend more hours on the bike than off it, it can become an extension of your body. And if, as I would argue, mind and body aren't quite as separate as we might believe, then that... Uh, extended body becomes extended mind and your sense of personhood changes and the way that the bike feels out the environment, the roads that we're on um, changes the kind of sensory skin that we have and what that does to our, our sense of who we are and our ability to imagine the world in a different way I think is very interesting. So this is slightly flippant again but I think when you're bent over the handlebars of your bicycle and we see everyone like that, that we're, we're kind of making question marks with our bodies and we're asking questions of the world with our body using the bike. So that's, that's a kind of grand conceit that I came to. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's fair enough because, I mean, I, I think it does, does fit. I mean, so 
People also wear Descartes as like representing Western thoughts. There are lots of non-Cartesians in Western thought, of course. But nevertheless, you know, that idea of the mind is essentially this kind of the essence of what it is to be you. And that's kind of private, and it's just inside this body. I think you're right. There's an alternative view, which is it's really not like that at all. The, the, first of all, there is no indivisible self at all, like your Buddhists um, would, would tell us. But also, yes, I mean, you know, we, we extend out. We can, but I think that's significant ethically and morally if you're conservation project as well because you know the breaking down of the idea of us living creatures who have this purely subjective private essence is part of the reason for the disconnection isn't it so you see yourself as connected and that is important for the kind of increased awareness for the environmental project yeah i mean the the reality is that we are interconnected right we can't actually live in any way separate from each other or from natural ecosystems every time we take a breath we're connecting ourselves with nature and we're sustained by that connection every time we eat something there's a there's a myriad of organisms that have allowed that thing to be grown or or farmed or whatever that we then eat so we we are actually connected to nature it's purely a perception that we're disconnected from nature but it's a very a very very damaging one arguably one that definitely needs to be challenged and as we said earlier I think being on a bike for a sustained period of time really brings that awareness back into your consciousness. Yeah. Which is not, I mean, I'm not opposed to rational, critical yeah. thinking about this either. I mean, I think, um, who is it? Rob McFarlane wrote that the greatest intellectual challenge facing humankind is to thoroughly rethink our relationship with nature. So I think there's an intellectual job to be done there too. Like, we have some stupid ideas, actually, about humans and our relationship with nature. It isn't out there separate from us, and we're not automatically superior to every other thing, And nor is it an infinite set of resources that we can carry on using indefinitely. So there's a lot of stupid ideas that we can challenge with our rational, critical minds, importantly and usefully, but unless we feel that as well as think it, I'm not sure it's actually going to lead into living differently. I think uh, you made great adverts, not just for f- cycling as a, a you know, route towards philosophy, but if we were to judge the hypothesis that cycling makes you a, a warmer, nicer, more interesting human being, purely on the data in front of us, we would definitely agree. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Jet McDonald's book Mind is the Ride and Kate Walls's forthcoming The Life Cycle are available from all good bookshops, including mine, accessible from julianbergini.com. The Carbon Cycle is a victim of its publisher going bust, but I recommend tracking down a second-hand copy. Now, I call Microphilosophy the longest, slowest-running philosophy podcast in the world. I started in 2011, but there have only been four seasons and fewer than 30 episodes so far. If you'd like the next 11 years to be a bit more productive, please do support the show by sharing this episode, subscribing or leaving a review. You can find out more about me and sign up for my weekly-ish newsletter at julianbergini.com, where you'll also find links to hundreds of my articles, numerous videos and podcasts, and my books. You can even become a supporter and get access to exclusive content, as well as regular online Café Philosophique-style discussions. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.